When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we have with us Dr. Charo Dachavery, a professor of classical Japanese literature at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her new book, Celebrating Sorrow, Medieval Tributes to the Tale of Sagoromo, provides translations and commentaries on a series of texts about Sagoromo, a classical Japanese love story. This book was recently published by the Cornell University Press. Uh, Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about my book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's so great to have you. And great to have another book that talks about classical Japanese literature. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, What do you teach and research about? Sure. I teach uh, classical Japanese language occasionally every other year, including this fall. I'm very excited about that. And literature um, in the graduate level or at the graduate level, we read it in something approximating the original, uh, approximating being the key word there, because, of course, scholarly editions are not the same as manuscripts. Um, But um, for the most part, with the undergraduate coursework, I teach classes in translation. They're often... um, centered on classical lit, but I will pursue themes like Japanese ghost stories. And increasingly, I think like many of our colleagues across the field, um, I find myself teaching gateway courses. So passion and enlightenment across Asia or Asia enchanted, uh, which is also great fun. Um, But my own research centers on um, most narrowly defined late Heian Monogatari and their reception, particularly that of the tale of Sogoromo, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then more broadly, um, modes of reading, I guess, ways in which um, books are used to understand the self. At least that's what I'm fascinated by, right? The changing um, understandings um, and orientations of readings of court works in the medieval era. And and um, that's primarily um, the, the era involved in this book. 
Wonderful. And uh, since since uh, you just mentioned this, uh, before we discuss about this particular work, could you give us a bit information, uh, a bit of background information of medieval literature? So you just mentioned the Han periods, Monogatari and Sagoromo. Can you tell us um, what these um what these uh, what, what's the definition of a monogatari for example sure oh that's a wonderful question and it is like all the good um and fun rich terms open to some interpretation so monogatari literally could be a mono a thing uh even maybe a mononoke takahashi toru an emeritus professor of of um uh, many things at um, Nagoya and Osaka before that, um, has a whole book where he talks about psychoperspective and the ways in which monogatari, these tellings, katari, of or by things, mono, uh, less excitingly people, mono, um, can be um, profitably compared to, you know, those picture scrolls where the, the fukinuki yatai, where the roof is blown off. And so you can sort of hover over the scene and look at it. And so Takashi-sensei argues that when we look into the world through the words even of a monogatari, like the tale of Genji or Sogoroma, what have you, that we are hovering. And what that means is that uh, the perspective isn't static. So the point of view might be over the shoulder of the protagonist, but then it might zoom out, zoom in to focus on or through someone else. So uh, I like how you introduced um, Sagoromo and uh, Heian tales, court tales as concerned with love. They're also concerned with politics. And of course, those two topics are very much intertwined, right? Uh, so reproductive, and for that matter, non-reproductive sex uh, is, is a rich uh, avenue of exploration in fiction at the time, but also a very um, instrumental and instrumentalized um, corner of, of courtier life. Uh, so I would say, to answer your question uh, more succinctly, that Genji, Sagoromo, Heian tales are really concerned with the full person, their dreams, their hopes, and, you know, the deployment of their bodies uh, in service to certain codes of, of aesthetics, but also to the practical needs of the court. Wonderful. Um, and these uh, tales, these monogatari, was it a uh, very common genre during this time period? Um, what are some of the shared or commonly seen um, themes and topics in these works? Sure. So when we think about court tales. Uh, and so here I'll distinguish them from the subject of my book, which is sort of the afterlife of these tales in other genres. Um, but court tales proper, let's say something like the 11th century. Let's circle in on that one. That's when the tale of Genji gets written over a series of years, if not decades. That's when Sagoromo and other tales get written. These are wildly popular at that time with a very small group of people. Probably most of the literate people at that time, or many of them, um, but uh, certainly not read uh, uh, by most of the population, most of whom were probably not literate, right? Uh, and so we have this kind of tension between works that we know all kinds of things about their audience and their interests and, and themes around, uh, you know, the seasons and beauty and evanescence and ephemerality and, and all of these uh, kind of... Um, uh, fusions of aesthetic and spiritual uh, Buddhist concerns, um, broadly put, on the one hand. And then, 
you know, we at the same time only have about 10% of those tales left. So that we have lists of names of other tales other than Tale of Genji, Tale of Sogormo. Uh, and there, we think there were as many as 200 of them uh, whose names we know or can infer from discussions in early medieval and later works. Um, but most of them didn't make it because they weren't read actually by all that many people. And when the aristocrats and their storehouses start burning or when the, um, you know, the, the insects get in, even if the storehouse is fine, you know, there weren't a lot of copies because they didn't circulate all that widely. So we have this probably really skewed perspective of themes and um, topics, uh, because of that, but but just to underscore the popularity of the ones that remain, they must have been copied many times if we still have some of the manuscripts. Indeed. So what we have now must have been popular ones. Yes. Back then. Yes. Yes. Popular in this, you know, in this rarefied circle of people. And what's neat about following the reception of Genji, or in the case of my book, the Tale of Sogormo, is that we start to see the tales. Uh, content and themes and even just its language, right? Juicy tidbits picked out and redeployed for different audiences uh, across the years from, say, 1200 to 1600, which is roughly the four centuries that my book spans. And so, you know, some of these people are literate, highly. They're aristocrats themselves. Others are not. And they consume these things through the ears. Some of them uh, are banquet songs, which literate folks wrote, but then the people listening to might not have done more than sing, right? Um, or listen to songs. So it's a really fascinating uh, question. What counts as popular? And, and the intersection of elite culture and popularity is, is a, a fascinating, I think, vein to mine. Oh, yes, that's exactly what I'm working on for my dissertation. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay! Um, but so for now, uh, we have been throwing this title, Sagoromo, around. What does it mean? What, um, I guess, how would we translate it into English? And more importantly, what kind of text is it? What is it about? And who wrote it? Sure. Um, so I think it's useful to recall, as you know, but all of our listeners might not, that personal names are few and far between in classical and medieval literary texts. And so, for instance, you take a book that's relatively well known, maybe people listening have certainly can choose to read it in one of many, many translations in many languages, something like the tale of Genji. Genji is not a proper name. You know, Genji refers to a both a particular clan and a uh, political status, you know, of someone born into uh, an imperial lineage and demoted from it. Sagoromo is super interesting because that title and the title of many of these lost tales that I was referencing earlier is, in fact, a, a poetic trope. So while the tale of Genji takes its inspiration from its protagonist's political status and history, Sagoromo and tales like it and the people responding to it in the works I translate in my anthology, they're much more interested in the sentiment and the sentimental life of the protagonist, not so much his political career. So very literally, Sagoromo means robes. It's sort of the poetic term for referring to this item of clothing. It is sometimes written in such a way as to suggest narrow robes. And I note that uh, difference in transcription uh, because the poetic sentiment that robes are supposed to uh, conjure um, is longing, 
right? Koi. Sometimes it's translated as love, but it's really love unrealized, love um, bitterly and sweetly recalled, never, you know, passion in its fulfillment. Uh, and so, you know, when you when you think of robes in the poetic tradition, and certainly the tale of Sogorma, what you're supposed to think about is someone sleeping by himself, using only his own robe for covering. The ideal courtly lovers slept beneath their garments. And of course, if you know anything about kimono, and I don't know much about kimono making, you know, they're actually very artfully constructed from one large or, or relatively few seams in a large piece of cloth. So they work rather well as bedding. And so our hero recites this poem early in the tale of Sogorbo when he's offered a chance to marry a princess and he's in love with someone else. And he basically says, no, thanks. I'll keep my narrow robes, you know, and, and that will have to be good enough. And so, you know, when he, uh, earns this name given by later readers based on a poem that uses the word Sogormo. And then when later readers create stories called Sogormo or plays called Sogormo or songs invoking the word Sogormo, you know, that's sort of the reference point. It's not a political status. It's an emotional, it's a, it's a piece of clothing that symbolizes in courtly verse an emotional experience. And that experience is isolation and sorrow. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, I actually took a whole seminar. The, the, the entire seminar was about Sagoromo when I was in, doing my AMA program, but nobody ever explained to me this sentiment, this this narrow robe idea. So this is very, it's, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, and and, and I, just forgive me, because you're an early modernist, I'll just point this out. You know, the very first commentary on Sogoromo, which, uh, from which I translate an excerpt in this anthology, you know, it's late. It's really late for a commentary. It doesn't come until 1590. And the guy who writes it, Arenga, or linked verse poet, uh, they studied court poetry to inform their own different but related form of, of um, verse. Um, he calls his commentary Sagormo no Shitahimo, Sagormo's undersash, punning on this textile metaphor. And then later commentary says, no, no, it's Sagormo no. I'm trying to think, is it irehimo, like these strings that you either tie at the neck or that help tie the innermost layers. And so the materiality of these garments was clearly important to the author, who was a court lady called Senji. She served a princess who never married, never slept under more than her own robe, in other words, as far as we know. Um, she was also a shrine priestess. So, you know, extramarital relationships, fine. Priestesses involved, sexually, not so good. So this is why I'm inferring that she had a fairly um, lonely, or at least, uh, you know, only one layer of robes kind of nighttime experience. But, you know, when Senji, her, her attendant, and that's not a personal name either, it refers to uh, her status as someone carrying messages for this elite princess. Uh, when Senji writes about robes, she means the clothing. And when Sanjo Nishi Sanetaka, a very elite scholar in the medieval period, who we know pawned his clothing to stay afloat because aristocrats lost so much literal capital, <laughs> they only survived staying afloat using their social capital, you know, selling books, selling lessons on books. When he wrote a play, he called it Sagormo, or we think he called it Sagormo, and it was all um, about moldering sleeves 
and lost clothing and remembering the days when the clothes were beautiful and fine and heavenly beings danced and swished their sleeves. So I'm thrilled that you took a seminar on Sohurmo. And I'm sure that there was all kinds of fascinating material discussed because it's a very, very rich book and clothing is is not all of it, but it is central. And I'm sorry that, that this is the first time it's come up. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's really, it's so cool, um, all these titles. Um, okay, now returning to your sorry, book. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yes. So what's the structure of the book? So I wanted very badly, since Sagormo is still not yet fully translated in English, but I have a colleague, actually he's a screenwriter in LA, but as a side project, uh, finishing his dissertation, he translated this work. He's a brilliant translator, Stephen Hanna. I hope that this translation will come out. But anyway, since I knew he was doing it, I couldn't translate it, right? And I thought, when it comes out, I want people to understand how important this book was. Because we have this utterly skewed sense of the impact of court monogatari that we were talking about earlier in the medieval period because only Genji was translated of these two very famous works. Sagormo was considered the second Genji. For a very long time, um, early medieval and some later medieval, in the middle they figured it out, but early medieval and some later medieval, people thought that Murasaki Shikibu, the author of Genji, wrote it, that they, that they thought that her daughter, forgive me, wrote it. Because it, it's so good, like Genji, and it, it's... It, alludes to Genji. So surely someone who knew Genji really well wrote it. And they're right, somebody who knew Genji wrote it. But it wasn't the uh, Genji author's daughter. Um, so I think that, um, forgive me, I'm losing the the thread of the question. Oh, so when I knew that Steve was doing this translation, I wanted people to be able to get that book, which should be out in a couple of years, I hope, his translation, maybe less, um, and see the world that it created. See how excited medieval readers and listeners um, across social statuses and and really income levels and and what we think of as classes, somewhat you know misleadingly warriors as opposed to even priests are involved in some of this and and commoners um, that they all engaged with it in different ways. And so I have an introduction outlining the history of the reception of the tale just a bit, because I know that his book is coming and he's going to talk a little bit about this. Um, and then I I translate a uh, late medieval, early modern uh, work that was intended for very popular audiences. We know this because they supplied reading and pronunciation guides in the margins. So really kind of people with uh, lower levels of literacy, um, liked stories about Sogormo or related to Sogormo too. And so I start with one of those stories because it, it, it provides a pretty good taste of the plot. It really follows just one uh, subplot from the original uh, tale, uh, but it follows it robustly. It adds a happy ending, all of these things that tell us something about changing uh, life paths and fantasies in the over the medieval and early early modern period, and I start with that. And then once I figure, okay, people have a sense of some of the important names, I then loop back in time to pull selections of poems that were really popular, uh, that were given new introductions, that were matched against poems from Genji on paper, and oftentimes the Sogormo themed poems won uh, because. Yeah, Tale of Genji, about a political status. Tale of Sogormo, poetic trope. You can see where the author's heart and arguably her real skills were in that area. And so I sort of move genre by genre, you know, from a narrative that brings us up to speed to collections of poems, 
arguably written by Senji herself. I say arguably because we don't have the manuscript in her hand. And Sagoromo is notorious for its variants, lots of different copies that are quite schizophrenic. Another big difference from Genji, where the manuscript lineage was curated and cleaned up really early on. Um, banquet songs play a play. And then this uh, first commentary from 1590 that we think was written for Toyotomi Hideyoshi. That's right. One of the three great unifiers of Japan in his spare time. I don't know that he read it. <laughs> but this Renga poet said, you know, I think Hideyoshi would really like to learn about Sagoromo's undersash. And maybe that's one small political piece. The hero of the tale of Sagoromo does, in fact, become emperor, despite being born a second generation commoner. We know or we think we know that Hideyoshi was interested in pulling off a trick like that elevating his own status, uh, getting close to the court. So maybe maybe this commentarist wanted to appeal to that. But it's basically introduction and a series of tastes of how the tale was consumed by different audiences in different genres over the years from roughly 1200 to roughly 1600. I noticed something interesting. So we're talking about this tale of Sagoromo, but you keep referring to the tale of Genji. And throughout the book, too, in the introduction and the commentary, the tale of Genji keeps coming up. Now, why is it that the tale of Sagoromo has so many intersections with Genji? Um, so to the tale of Genji being possibly the most famous Japanese um, literary work, also sometimes known in the world's fa- uh, first novel. Why does the tale of Sagoromo have so much to do with Genji and in what way? Well, uh, I think I will first pose uh, a question and response, which is when we talk about Genji, why aren't we talking about tales of Ise? Why aren't we talking about the bamboo cutter, uh, Taketori Monogatari? Why aren't we talking about Kagero Diary? Uh, if court literature, court tales, things told by someone, things possibly told from the perspective of a spirit who hovers over different shoulders, if they were anything, they were densely intertextual. To think of modern writers, as I think we all agree, you know, sitting alone in a coffee shop with their noise-canceling headphones, and to think that that's how Murasaki Shikibi wrote, or that that's how Senji wrote, I mean, it's crazy, right? But some, and, and we all tend to recognize that, but we don't tend to recognize the impact of a truly intertextual collaborative literary ecosystem on how we deal with the books themselves. Because once they're published, you know, we don't see the authors, but we see the books. And, you know, here I'm holding in my hands a copy of Kokinchu, and we're like, look, it's all alone. It has its own spot on my shelf. But Genji is every bit as much engaged with other works. Uh, When I took my first uh, grad seminar in Japan uh, with the late Mitani Kuniaki, I took Sagoromo with Mitamura Masako, his spouse, and that was fascinating since she's a pillow book person. And Sagoromo also engages with the pillow book. But, you know, Mitani Sensei said, before you read Genji, you have to read the Song of Unending Sorrow because it's like an answer to that text. You know, the Song of Unending Sorrow imagines Yang Guifei and, and her Chinese emperor longing endlessly or resenting endlessly, if you want to take a somewhat freewheeling interpretation of the Chogongka Changhanga title. Um, and, and so Genji could be an answer. Well, what does that look like in real life? When you can't get over a person, you see that I'm eschewing the political reading for now. If you can't get over a person, what would that do to your subsequent romantic career? When you can't get over a change in political status, what would that do to your subsequent political career? And of course, politics and romance, as I noted earlier, intertwined. So, you know, similarly, if Genji 
uh, to set aside the political dimension for a moment that gets foregrounded in its title, if Genji is really concerned with unshakable fixations, compulsions, or, or simply pain that has not been processed. So then what does that look like? You know, when instead of just sitting weeping into your sleeves, you know, we end the Song of Unending Sorrow, this fabulous Tang Chinese poem, and it's like, sorrow lasts forever. And then we see Genji sad, but endlessly trying to fill the gap forever. Well, what happens when you have somebody realize early in life, as Sagoromo, Mr. Narrow Sleeves does at the beginning, I'm never going to fix it. It's never going to be better. What if you started a tale there? And he still pursues all of the women whom he pursues, or the one woman through all of the others, right? Uh, which is what Genji does. You find a woman that you want. You can't have her. You look for a relative. You look for someone whose touch of her arm reminds you, you know, all of these placeholders. What happens if they learn in their youth that it's never going to get better? What does the rest of that life look like? And so Genji sort of narrates in, you know, densely a, a life you know, 50 years of Genji's life, let's say, plus or minus. Sogoromo is a 12-year span. It's about a quarter of the length of Genji physically, but also about a quarter of the narrative. Actually, it's less than a quarter of the narrative time span since we hear about Genji's parents and we also hear about his descendants. But, you know, I think the reason that I keep coming to Genji is pragmatic in some ways, that people know it, and it gives them another way to engage with this text. But also medievals understood something that we've forgotten as moderns. And there are, there are also cultural gaps, right, that aid in that uh, misunderstanding, which is that you didn't read Genji alone. So why would we read Sagoromo alone? And, you know, people, other people, that's their crusade. They can fix that impression of Genji. It certainly stands on its own. And, and Sagoromo stands on its own, too. But if I'm going to put out a book, I'm going to try to say, look, let's look at it together. That also helps its chances of being read. Right. Uh, and, and I think we gain when we grapple with a book that wants us to confront. I don't know if it's bleak or bittersweet reality about life. You know, the opening line of Sagoromo is um, the spring of youth is fleeting. It's an allusion to another Chinese uh, poem by the same Chinese author, in fact, <laughs> as the Song of an Ending Sorrow. But. You know, if you start a text saying the spring of youth is fleeting, and it was already the fourth month, almost summer, by the old calendar, or early summer by the old calendar, then, you know, then maybe you get to come to terms with that and stop living, you know, <laughs> with your mind in the future. Maybe you start living in the present. So anyway, I, I take your point. I talk about Genji a lot because Senji, the author, alludes to Genji a lot. She also alludes to a lot of other texts that I don't talk about as much, uh, because then the footnotes would be even more ridiculous <laughs> in my annotations. That is such a wonderful way to explain why these texts refer to each other so much. Um, it's hmm. Well, it's it's so different from when I first learned about this, when people, when my professor would simply say, oh, because, because everyone had to read it because it was famous. And it's just so beautiful to learn that it's not just because it's It's a famous. conversation, right? <laughs> yes. It's like when we yes. think about our citational practices, right? Do we cite other people because we have to? I mean, sure, I guess. But it's also because there's this conversation, right? The play of ideas. Uh, and at the risk of imagining myself into the past, right? Putting the world in my own person. Yes, there was difference. 
but I refuse to believe that um, the passion for ideas and debate was any um, simpler or more one-dimensional. Yeah. Indeed, that's very well said. Now, another thing your book uh, keeps uh, talking or talked covered a lot is poetry. So, how important was poetry in medieval tales like this? Poetry was enormous, both in court tales like Genji and Sogoromo. I think Genji has what eight hundred poems. Uh, in what is an 1,100-page, 1,200-page work in English translation. Sogoromo might be 300 pages in English translation. My my friend Steve Hanna, he's got big footnotes, so it might be many more pages. But the text, the text, if they let him keep them, um, is maybe 300 pages, and it has proportionally more poems than Genji. And why is that? Well, you know, there's this anthology that I was holding in my hands earlier, Kokinshu, this seminal collection of Japanese poetry compiled in around 905, or at least commanded to be compiled in around 905, um, common era. And there's this phenomenal statement indebted to Chinese poetics, but still its own creature uh, that, that says that poetry is how humans sing, right? That the, the human heart uh, bursts forth in flower, in leaves of words, in 31 syllables, in fact, Japanese waka. So you can see that as a kind of universalist or colonial claim for Japanese poetry, sure. And has it been used that way? Yeah, I think it has. But, but you know, the notion that verse simply expresses and encapsulates how we feel. And that that is a tremendously useful thing because your experience of heartbreak and my experience of heartbreak may not look at all the same. You know, any good or bad emotion is, is I think, unique, right? Even in one person, if I've broken my heart three times, they've probably been different experiences each time. So how do we convey that quality of sadness, of loneliness, of narrow robedness? You know, the solution in waka in Japanese court poetry that is throughout my book, because people said, yeah, this is a useful way for, for sharing information is to say, okay, you don't know how my broken heart feels, but you can see that maple tree out there and you see those scarlet leaves and do you see that one that's fallen? And if you direct your gaze further, do you see where it's brown and wrinkled and trodden on the ground? That's how my heart feels right now. And it's still an imaginative leap, right? I'm heartbroken. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. But there's something about the materiality or at least the, the, uh, sensory, uh, uh, suggestiveness of that leaf, right? Uh, that that helps people to understand. So that's my working theory for why it happens so much in court poetry. Uh, not just that they're trying to establish a Japanese genre, uh, you know, as a point of of cultural uh, pride. And there's lots of work of this kind, and and lots of more interesting, I think, work talking about the blurring of Chinese forms and Japanese forms and the rest in the court, but. That, that essential mission of court poetry to share how we feel because emotions are tough and life and relationships are tough, but we can try to get closer to understanding, to mutual understanding. I think it was just really effective. And, and I think that's one reason in a time of social upheaval, you know, different historians will stress continuity or change in different moments in the four medieval centuries. And, you know, that's above my pay grade. You, you, you know, there's an argument to be made on either side. But 
certainly in times of transition and loss, to be able to pause and share and communicate an experience, I think that's invaluable. So I think that's, for me, that's more persuasive than saying, well, everybody had to do it, so they did it. Or even, oh, the aristocrats survived by selling poetry lessons, so they did it. Or Hideyoshi wanted to look smooth and and acquire cultural polish, so that's why. I mean, sure, yeah, it's always overdetermined. But, you know, you can show your social polish in a lot of ways. Why do it in this one? I think there's a there there. I think it, it communicates powerfully to enough people that it's stuck. We're throwing this... um... Hardly related question. Well, it's related in one way. So as a person who works on the late Suga period, I encounter these arguments about, like you just mentioned, um, these uh, sentiments in medieval poetry had to do with colonialism. And um, in my little knowledge about this, I often see um, medieval poetry used by um, nativist scholars such as Motori Norinaga, and uh, he called this monono aware. Oh, um, the, the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he calls this uh, sentiment of say the changes, of the four seasons, the the falling sakura, the, the cherry flowers, monono um, aware, and it has been used as such a trope about traditional Japanese culture, like we often see um, people talk about the, the, the ancient Japanese art of Semono no Awale. And it would, they would always use examples of medieval Japanese poetry. So from your perspective, um, studying about uh, how these poems were composed, why they made it, how they were trying to express their feelings, um, what comments do you have on this mono no aware concept? So let me be more diplomatic than I was <laughs> being in my immediate response. Um, first of all, let me note this, uh, and, and I'll borrow from J.K. Rowling in the final Harry Potter book. There's a scene where, where Harry, I hope this isn't plot spoiler readers, listeners, if you haven't finished reading the Harry Potter series, like skip the next two minutes. Um, there's this moment where Harry is sort of having this out-of-body experience at a train station, and he runs into his great mentor. I'll try not to do too much plop spoiling. And at some point, Harry says, you know, this isn't real. This isn't really happening, is it? It isn't real. And it's, it's all in my head. And his mentor says, well, yeah, of course it's in your head. But why should that mean it isn't real? In other words, that fiction or empathy or imaginative leaps um, – can itself be an important form of truth and a valid way of understanding one's own experience, right? Um, and I say this because, you know, I think the this mono no aware line of reading, and I have certainly had students who came in from their AP courses in high school and they read something about Norinaga. He was like one of the jab, and they come in to take a course on Genji with me, and they're like, it's all about mono no aware, and it just makes me crazy. Because it's so unhistorical. I just want to note that while I've been offering this defense or explanation of the persistence of poetry in my anthology, but also across uh, class and level of education, really, in the medieval centuries, um, which for me would be 1200 to 1600, although some people would include Genji as a kind of early medieval and Sogormo as early medieval. So there are different classificatory schemes. But I think um, 
you know, plenty of these emotions were faked. Like we know people drew poems on screens and that they wrote poems as if they were that picture, you know, that, that figure illustrated on the screen. We know there were poem contests where the uh, topics were assigned in advance, right? You know, collections like Kokinchu, this great statement of Japanese poetry to start with, you know, they'll tell you in the head note to each poem composed at such and such a contest. So the artifice, right, the insincerity, you know, there's this explanation of mono no aware as aware is coming from, I think uh, it's Iwanami Kogojiten that says this, I don't know, but it's like, it's onomatopoeia for the sound you make when you are uh, involuntarily moved, you know, so instead of, oh, oh it's, ah. Oh, or, you know, there's all of these different ways of, of, of reading it as if it had to be, um, I mean, terms like authenticity and sincerity, I, I mean, they're, they're so vexed anyway. But I think that when we come at Genji and we say, oh, it's this one thing, first, we miss all of the other strands. And that's as true of Sagoro and as true of any 31 syllable classical Japanese poetry as, as anything else. Like, like, people are complex. Minds are complex. Uh, and I, if it's not clear by now, I'm interested in getting closer to historical readings, but I do not believe that we have no personal claim on this stuff too, right? So that I always encourage my students, make up your minds what you want to get out of this class. Do you want to get a bunch of knowledge about Heian and medieval lit? Okay, then I'll work for that with you. And if you want to like enrich your own writing, you're the future novelist and you're looking to just experience something human, then I will try to teach to that too, because I think they're, they're both going on. Um, so I don't have a lot of enthusiasm for any one reading. Um, and probably the number of times that I've had students come in and they're so happy and they're so proud. Like this is typically in first year students. They know a Japanese phrase, mono no ware, and they're like, it's in Genji. I'm probably overly sensitive to that at this point. And there's surely something beautiful and interesting there. But I am probably not the best person to advocate for that. So it's a very long, indirect answer. I guess I would just say, sure, and, okay, mono no ware, fine, and, at what moment, for what person, to whose benefit, right? These are questions that I would urge people to ask. <laughs> Indeed, I, I really, really appreciate that you said that. <laughs> now, returning to the book, uh, we're still talking about the book, yes. Now, chapter four discusses no plays that were based on this tale. So from discussion, you also is expand to uh, discussing the ways that medieval literary works functioned in the centuries to come. So could you talk more about this part? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think that... So so there were several uh, Sagormo-themed no that were written, and we only have one extant. Uh, maybe there's another copy hiding in a warehouse, forgive me, storehouse somewhere, right? Some fabulously wealthy aristocratic family has it somewhere, but I haven't seen it. I don't know about it. It hasn't been written about as far as I know. Um, so in terms of influence... In the centuries that followed, I don't think this particular play had a lot of influence, right? There are no that have been more or less frequently performed, uh, frequently and no or sort of, I mean, this is all in the area of relative judgment, right? Not like super often, but for no, super often. So Gonoro wasn't uh, performed much as a no um, after, you know, its initial um, composition and staging. But 
you know, the stories, the cycle of Sagoromo themed stories that were produced at about the same time, we, we've referred to them sometimes as Muramachi era, era tales. And Muramachi is a broad historical label too, could be 14th century to 16th century. Is that right? Something like that. Um, and so um, those tales, some of them were, which, which follow, you know, a, a particularly sad love story. The woman actually dies, you know, uh, after giving birth to the hero's child. And he never, you know, he gets involved with all these women, even though he says he'll sleep alone. It just means he doesn't really commit, right? So I, I can be a cynic for a minute and say, well, he's overdetermined. He really feels it, but he's also a bit of a cad, whatever. You know, you could pick, choose your poison. Um, but those stories were hugely popular. And so we talk about the tale's influence. And the, so there's the tale of Sogormo, roughly 1070, Right. And then we fast forward to, you know, the no, roughly 1500, 1501, you know, around there. These Sogormo themed stories, and I'm using the, the word story to distinguish it in length as something shorter from the tale. These were written and rewritten, rewritten and copied. They were printed. They were illustrated, some in very fancy illustrations, some in very plain illustrations. They had an, a long afterlife. And in fact, most of the Sogormo-themed artwork that is available, and this is something that Takahashi Toru, the retired scholar from Nagoya and Osaka, who I mentioned before, has also written about, um, most of the Sogormo-themed artworks that we have actually don't illustrate the tale. They illustrate those stories. Something about the fantasy ending, the happy ending in those stories, plot spoiler, uh, someone who is dead is brought back to life. And there's happy endings for everyone. You can't imagine that in a Heian tale, right? Or if you did, it would be like an object of fun. You know, the Kagero diarist uh, written, writing, you know, before Genji, but in the same milieu, uh, she starts her, her, her memoir saying, there are all of these romances and they're just ridiculous. They're a bunch of BS. I'm going to tell you what it's really like, right? So she would have mocked something like that endlessly, and most aristocrats had. But what Sogoromo provided that survived, I think, was the sense of the power of longing, yes. And we see that in Genji and other extant tales, the tale of the Hamamatsu middle counselor, the tale of uh, Nezame. These are other examples. Um, what Sogoromo does is it just lingers on the... Um, the exquisite, bittersweet beauty of that feeling of lost love. You know, I have a, I have a teenager uh, who, as yet, to my knowledge, has not been in love. And he does not want to talk about these things with me in any case. But, you know, I'm, I'm preparing in my head all the time that talk. You know, the, it is better to have loved and, because I think, and lost. Because I think that, you know, at its best, I... Uh, outing myself even more fully as a kind of humanist, as a secular humanist, is that, you know, there is a fullness of human experience and a lot of wonderful writing around the world uh, in which we recognize the complexity of our lives, right? And the, and the difficulty and, and coincidence of difficult emotions, right? That we can feel pleasure and pain at the same time and be conflicted about all of it. I think that's the afterlife of this tale. Um, and so when we get to uh, you and I, before the recording uh, started, I asked you about a particular um, artist, Yashima Gakute, who in the 1820s, 
roughly 18 teens and 20s, uh, produces a couple of Tale of Sogoromo themed illustrations, which are lovely. They're held and digitized at the Art Institute of Chicago and uh, Harvard University Art Museums, among others, both have images, but the cover of my book is one of these images from the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, the artist shows the hero playing his flute. It's, it's this wonderful flute concert that ends up eliciting or, or inspiring the offer of marriage that he rejects when he says, no, I'd rather sleep alone under my single, you know, ratty robe. Actually, it's quite a very nice robe, but under my own robe with nobody else. Um, that, um, that artist and, and people working on Sogoromo in the early modern period take it in really different ways. And it becomes this kind of triumphant moment almost. Like, yes, he's sad, but isn't it beautiful? And I think it's on the cover of my book, it's the Queen Mother of the West who is somehow involved, nothing to do with the tale, nothing to do with the tale, or very loosely related to the tale, is descending and acknowledging it. Um, so I don't think the no play had much of an afterlife, or if it did, I'm just moving into looking at Edo period illustrations, because that's when the bulk of them are produced, and also Edo period commentaries following up on the one I worked on. You know, maybe I'll find that actually um, Sanjo Nishi Sanataka's no play was hugely influential, but right now I don't think so. I think it's the idea of this powerful expression of the human experience of grief and and the persistence of hope, um, you know, in the face of um, disappointment that's stuck. It's, yeah, it's mono no aware. Ah, alas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last question. Um, for many readers, the tale of Sagaro might not seem as attracting as tales about war stories. So we have the tales of Hege, we have all kinds of um, painting scrolls that were uh, motivated by the, 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 the stories in the tale of Hege and other war stories, or extensive love stories that like the tale of Genji. Um, and like you said, there were many other works like Sagoromo that portrayed um, similar uh, lives of aristocrats that have not yet to be introduced to the readers outside of Japan. So as I guess I'm asking this um, to you as a, a an instructor of literature, in what ways do you think works like Sagoromo could inform us modern-day English readers, especially when um, Sagoromo doesn't even have a full English translation published? Yeah. Well, well, I will say two things about that. First of all, there's a whole uh, series of supernatural events in Sagoromo that I don't talk about much because medieval readers, or at least some powerful or prominent medieval readers, hated them. They're like, the tale is so great, if only it didn't have this. And I think really because these were powerfully placed people, um, you know, you don't see the supernatural events being engaged with. Or there are, so, so for instance, like all kinds of gods descend, you know, and then they like leave love letters for characters and they descend when the hero plays his flute. And the Kamo shrine, according to the text you look at, either the god, Kamo god surfaces or the shrine reverberates and echoes. There's all this spooky stuff, which I actually think is kind of fun. And I have taught my friend's translation, which is not available, but he shared a draft with me. And actually students kind of respond well to that. Um, but the other piece that you see in Sogoromo that I think is interesting, um, whether it is useful for moderns to see or not, maybe moderns like knowing that yokai 
uh, events have a very long history, it turns out, you know, I suppose. Um, But, you know, there are kidnappings and there are people behaving badly in realistic and recognizable ways. You know, in Genji, it's always so dramatic. It's like, oh, Ukifune, should I choose this one? Should I choose that one? And God knows we see enough of that in anime, right? It's like androgynous character number one, androgynous character number two. Who should I go for? But Sogoromo, you'll have like a priest who's like, yeah, I want her. And he, he kidnaps a woman who's on retreat. And then it, it's not like... um super dastardly you know he's not a competent criminal he gets caught he runs off nothing all that bad happens it's kind of um uh boy you know the term mirror is super charged in in east asian pre-modern literatures and histories right but we see something of ourselves i mean the good the bad the ugly they're all there so i actually would push back a little bit on the premise that sagoromo is not in and of itself attractive, I think the reason that it has not been translated has much more to do with, one, it's very messy textual corpus. There's often been a desire to translate the right text, the correct text, and I just reject that. I think they're all interesting. I think you read and write about the one that you like. My friend, uh, Steve Hanna, again, who's translated it, he's picked and chosen his favorite strands, you know, the basic plot is always the same, but the details are the fun part and they differ. Um, and he's put together his own kind of collated version of the text, his own recension, if you will, and and, and presented that. So that'll be like a best of. Um, but I think one reason was that, you know, people just didn't, were afraid of translating the wrong one or, you know, it hadn't even been available in scholarly Japanese editions for a long time because Japanese scholars were trying to establish the textual lineages. I mean, great if that's what you're interested in. I'm not that interested in that kind of thing. Um, I think abundance more. over The overdetermined Sogoromo, I love it. There are 500 ways to explain it. Great. Um, but the other reason is that Genji itself and its canonicity, I mean, it was always popular, but Genji alone Genji, where we don't talk about Tales of Issei and Kagura Diary when we talk about Genji, that's a modern thing. And, and you know, the, the Meiji Kokubungaksha, the Meiji scholars who were busy creating a canon, right? This is an old story by now. We all know Tomiko Yodo's fabulous book on this. If you don't, you should read it. Uh, and there's, there's more work of that kind out there. Um, thank goodness. But they needed a number two. To have a great work, it's really helpful to have the next best. So you have the Olympic dais, right? And you have the gold up there and then silver and bronze. And I think Sogoromo was just kind of grabbed and and redeployed in part through a misunderstanding. uh, And this is a part of something I'm talking about in my next book, which is in progress, but a misunderstanding of that 1590 commentary and what that Renga poet was doing with Sogoromo's undersash. I think he said, oh, it's an omokage, a reflection, a likeness of Genji. And boy, in English, that sure sounds like a copy. And boy, don't we love originals of a certain kind in English language criticism, right? We don't like derivative work. And so I really think that, you know, but for Fujioka Sakutaro and other Meiji era scholars writing their Heian histories where Genji had to be head and shoulders above everything else, I think the story, you know, people might already have a translation. There's been a Russian translation of Sagoromo forever. Uh, one of my Russian grad students was, was enlightening me about this. Um, a few years ago. So Steve Hanna's translation is wonderful. The man has a gift. He's a screenwriter. So I think I think it will be an attractive book and I think students will have fun reading it. Uh, probably they won't let him keep all of his footnotes and that will help. 
I sure hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I really, really enjoyed your passion and enthusiasm about medieval literature. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you're interested in Japanese love stories or medieval literature or literature, make sure not to miss this new book, Celebrating Sorrow: Medieval Tributes to the Tale of Sagoromo by Dr. Charo Echeverry. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.